Hello, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines and everywhere in between. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with all of you for many reasons, but especially because as we find ourselves here at the end of a whirlwind year, we're living in times that are primed for reflection, transformation, and opportunities to usher in change. So I find the focus of today's show to be particularly timely and relevant. Today we're talking about leadership for sustainability, and my hope is that this discussion will leave you feeling a bit more empowered and prepared to take on some of the world's most wicked problems. And when I say wicked problems, I want to clarify that my Boston did not just slip out right there. Um, We are using wicked in a different context here, which we will clarify in a bit. My guest today is Dr. Bruce Hull. Bruce, in addition to serving as an educator, mentor, inspiration, and guide to me and many others, is a senior fellow at the Center for Leadership in Global Sustainability at Virginia Tech, which is a program that provides graduate education to and professional development opportunities for people like myself, as it is my graduate alma mater, and other sustainability professionals working at the intersection of business, government, and civil society. He has authored and edited numerous publications, including a few books, one of which we will be discussing today. Bruce, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. It's a very kind introduction. It's an honor to be here with you. So I want to start off by getting to know the you that lives within the perf- the professor and sustainability leader that I've come to know over the years. So will you tell me more about the path that you took to end up where you are now? Yeah, well, I'm a I'm a boomer, I confess. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm barely a boomer. I'm, I'm sort of at the end of the boomer generation. And there's a lot of turmoil and unrest and concern about the environment that I, I grew up with. I, I I'm not really sure why I uh, took this path. I've, I've asked the same question of lots of professionals and people have a pretty good story when looking backwards, you kind of connect the dots, but looking forward, I'm, I'm not really sure what got me here. I, you know, my mom was really into organic gardening, which was sort of novel at the time. Uh, my dad was, uh, uh, we lived in DC and he worked for the feds and he he sort of stayed at the at the front of suburbia kept moving out further and further uh but i, I really think it was like earth day or or maybe it was mr franklin my my <laughs> high school horticultural teacher um or going to a couple parks or something like that but for whatever reason i i really became concerned about about the environment um and uh, went to school for that purpose, uh, thought that uh, if I became an ecological person doing science and whatnot, that be able to address some of the, the challenges, uh, but quickly learned that there wasn't a whole lot of power in ecology. Uh, I, I love ecology and have a lot of training in it and work with ecologists, but um, it wasn't really influencing. It wasn't really where the challenges were, and, and so I started to do a lot of economics uh, and work with econ- economists and uh, study it, and um, and eventually started realizing that it didn't have the power either. So I moved more towards sort of social science and anthropology, and and ended up in leadership, right? Because um, that's the decision making, that's the capacity for people to make uh, choices, inform choices, and and collaborate. Um, and so that's you know that's my sort of just part of my journey. The other part is just travel. Uh, I've been able to work in uh, as a as a professor researcher or whatever in Australia and Texas and Virginia and India, variety of places, and uh, that's just been a real eye opener. Um, and so uh, it's led me to where I am now, which is focusing mostly on on as you mentioned, uh, you know, people like you and and your audience as professionals who are out there making the difference and how to build capacity so that they uh, 
they can have more influence and impact in their in their work. Yeah, and I think having this moment to have this conversation with you is such an interesting opportunity because during our grad program, we, meaning the students, spent a lot of time exploring the world of self-awareness and getting to know and understand uh, both ourselves and our fellow cohort mates. And we definitely got some of that with the faculty and staff just through sheer time spent together and traveling internationally. But this is such a nice way to color in more of like a full picture of, of you. And I think one of my favorite aspects of this show is getting to know the humans behind the work. And so I'm, I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit more on, on really what sparked that interest to get you into the field of academia or how did you get into academia? Well, academia um, is pretty much uh, luck, I think. Um, well, I consider it lucky because I, I think it's a very privileged and uh, wonderful career. Uh, it has been has been good to me. Lot, lots of opportunities and choices have come from it. But I did not um, let's see. I did not thrive in in high school, uh, and uh, was uh, was a pretty poor student. And uh, uh, my mother sort of made me go to college. Literally refused to let me drive out the driveway uh, one day, and to, unless I applied, and I went, and, you know, I, I, I found some faculty members and some projects and stuff, and realized that it was it was fun, um, and I was actually pretty good at it, um, and and so I I started I started doing it, and one one opportunity led to another. I, I, I didn't was not my plan, but I ended up in the academy. It was certainly was was not my plan. But I have not followed a traditional academic career. Uh, I've um, I have published a lot and done a lot of research, but I've, I've I've changed directions quite a number of times and taken opportunities to work in a very applied fields where people are where practitioners are are solving problems. So that's that's the cool thing about the academy is it allows allows you to focus on on stuff where you think the the problem is. I'm not sure it really answers your question, but I, I don't have a good answer. It's it's luck, I think. Yeah, I don't think there's ever really a particular answer that I'm looking for. And I think that what you shared is something that really resonates with me in a way that, uh, you know, I also was not a classic uh, example of a, of a good student in high school. And even through college, I feel like I had moments where I was like, maybe I should have taken a, a gap year or two to kind of figure out where my interests lie. And I think the really special thing and um, you know, I think I can elaborate a little bit on this more later, but uh, the special thing about this executive master natural resources program is it is not necessarily your classic graduate program and it allows opportunities for students like myself that have the drive and the will and the passion to do this kind of work. But maybe if you look at us on paper, um, would not get into a, a classic graduate program that's structured in that way where you need to to really excel on the GREs and in your classes. And I mean, that's not to say that I was a total, like failed everything, but you know, I, I, I think that the, the full picture was not necessarily told and cannot be told if you just look at somebody based on their grades or how they do on standardized tests. So um, I'm very appreciative for, for that XMNR program that I went through um, for kind of taking a more holistic look at the person um, when considering who to, um, you know, in include in each cohort. So, yeah, well, folks uh, like you and the peers uh, in your program, uh, you know, they're just amazing drive, uh, uh, talent, uh, vision, um, wanting to make a difference and, um, and, and then nurturing that, figuring out how to, to build that capacity. So there is a lot of self-discovery and, and tutoring and, and, and mentoring in that regard. Um, but I, I, I get asked, uh, as a professor, listening you know, people mistakenly think I have th advice to give about careers. Um, uh, but I have, so especially for young people, uh, you know, young, and it, to me, it's like an 18 year old or a 19 year old, ask them to pick a major or a career. That seems like a big burden. And, I, um, and then, and then, and then the mid career folks like, like you, and when you're coming to the program, it's still a huge, huge burden. I think, you know, we, 
we each make a, a, a choice when, when given a choice to take a new job or, or take a fork in the road and we do the best we can. And then that will lead to something, something better. Um, but it's hard to, hard to predict where to, where we're going to end up. Yeah, absolutely. And what an awesome opportunity it must be as an educator to motivate and mentor and inspire however many hundreds or thousands of people that you've taught over the years. And I imagine in order to consistently show up for your students and your colleagues and yourself, uh, that it takes a great deal of motivation and finding new and interesting ways to stay inspired and interested in the work. So I'm, I'm wondering, what is it that motivates and inspires you? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's like you. Um, it's, uh, it's the, uh, it's the people that I get to work with, um, students, professionals that are, uh, motivated and interested. I mean, that's it, it, what a, what a, what a great motivator for me, uh, and learning lessons and nuances is, is from you. So that's really what motivates and inspires me now. I mean, early in my career, um, there were writers and scientists and technocrats and others I thought would be the, the was the inspiration. And, and, and I tried to be that. Uh, and then later uh, really became motivated by the uh, by the great conservationists, you know, Leopold Carson and others, those kinds of stuff. But but right now it's you know, it's basically it's it's you. It's the it's the people on the front lines um, making a small difference each day and learning from them and and telling their stories. Uh, there's just so much wisdom in in practice, uh, in, in, in the practice of practitioners uh, that that's what motivates me and inspires me now. Thinking about how you mentioned those those classic thought leaders like the Leopolds and Carsons of the world. And um, also considering where we are now with um, the slower pace of life for a lot of people with staying indoors and um, finding new ways to stay inspired and motivated. I think about those people developing their thoughts and their philosophies through spending a great deal of time outside. And I've been spending just, a, I feel like, you know, my whole life I've, I've been very prone to spending as much time as possible outdoors, but lately I've been finding a lot of peace and space through going on walks or hikes. And um, I've been feeling a deeper appreciation for these natural spaces because they're providing me a moment to think and reflect and, you know, consider what some of my next steps might be or work through any emotions that I'm feeling. Um, and just really renewing my appreciation for moments outside and connecting with nature. And that made me curious to ask you uh, what your connection is to the natural world and what do you enjoy most about spending time outside? I'm a um, I'm a romantic when it comes to nature as well. I mean, I love it. Um, a sunset or a moonrise, um, uh, and I spend a lot of time hiking. Uh, but uh, just uh, uh, I I see it mostly as a, that's a cultural phenomena. I think uh, other cultures sort of get this sense of 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 awe or or spirituality or calm uh, from from other. Other sources, um, it's 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 particularly it's our culture, uh, my culture, anyways, um, and it, it works for me. I mean, I hike a tremendous amount, um, and I, but I, unlike many people, I go back to the same spot over and over and over and over again. Uh, sort of adopt them and and watch them change and and, and know them very well. And, and so I have a few trails in the Appalachian Mountains that are, um, uh, I'm, I'm there multiple times a week sometimes. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm very much inspired by nature, but I'll also marvel at a, like a dandelion, a weed or something that's, that's growing up in the crack of a, of a, of a city street and just marvel at its creativity and persistence of, of evolution and ecology. I mean, it's just, it really does inspire me. Uh, it also uh, gives me a sense of calm and focus and you know, sense, an opportunity to quiet the other voices that are in my head. 
and and think about some of the bigger issues. So I I find a lot of solace uh, in in nature as well. Uh, but I, I, uh, I'm a bit of a rebound romantic that way because I, I studied this academically and scholarly. And actually, the uh, earlier book, the Infinite Nature book, is is a pushback somewhat against against believing that nature is you know something that works for everybody. It, we're we're trained, I think, in our culture to to really find that that voice. Um, so that's 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 where why I, I love nature. I mean, I, I, I it's been a, a great uh, companion for me. Yeah, and I I I um, love hearing you say that you return to one spot. Or I just think that there's something really special about watching something change over time. You know, whether that is a natural area or a person or a pet or what whatever is it is like finding an appreciation in a thing and noticing how it changes over time. Um, I think is something that brings me a lot of joy. And I guess I'm thinking of this in the context of where I'm sitting right now in my home office, there's this incredible uh, elm tree outside of my window that is just, it's monstrous in the most beautiful way. It's huge and scraggly. And, uh, you know, I had a moment the other day where I was like, wow, when this COVID shutdown started, it was bare like it is now. And I watched it go through the entire process of budding its leaves and then they bloomed and watching the leaves sway all summer and then turn this bright shade of yellow and fall off. And I think that there's something that um, it's hard to put into words, but, you know, I think what you said about your trails and, and revisiting one place just really spoke to me at my core. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nature. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting, right? There's so much detail and you can stare at it and it can captivate you. It's, but it's not, it's not like, it's not speaking to you. It's not like a car commercial or something telling you what to attend to or how to smell, how to look. It's just, but it's interesting, right? So you, it's, it's arousing. You look at it and get all excited and, and, and attend to the moving of the leaves or the, the, the piece of trail or the mountain or the vista or whatever it is. And then, and then you, then you can have some inner reflection. You can use all that attention to focus on some bigger questions rather than the distractions of life. So yeah, it's very meditative for me. Yes, definitely. And, you know, maybe this is a good moment for listeners to think about what is that place for you or what is that thing and take a take a pause for a meditative moment um, before we start talking about the book, because um, you have a new book out, which is Leadership for Sustainability, Strategies for Tackling Wicked Problems, which first off, congratulations on publishing your third book, I believe it is. Is that correct? Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And tell me more about how this book came to be and what were the driving factors behind it? Well, I've hinted at it a little bit. I mean, as a prof at a major university, it's a it's an incredibly privileged position. So I get to travel and see lots of issues and interact with lots of really smart people doing doing creative things. Uh, And over my career, three things became really apparent. One is the obvious is that we, we there are some huge challenges that we face, uh, biodiversity and overfishing and climate change and what have you. Um, but uh, second is that uh, I, we really do have the science and technology and policy tools to, to address these challenges. We might not know exactly how to do it in each place and each time for each culture, uh, but I'm I'm convinced we we can solve just about all the big challenges that we face with the existing existing tools, and just you know look at COVID. Um, we 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 figured out a way to to manage public health. And it was you know it was a huge huge challenge. We haven't done it well uh, as well as we could, um, and we haven't haven't distributed the vaccine or, or administered it yet. So there's still a long way to go. But you know that was a big challenge, and and I think these other challenges we can we can address as well. So so one is that we got huge challenges too. Is uh, I'm I'm convinced from meeting all these creative people and that we we can solve them, and they're being solved. We just need to scale up those solutions. And three um, is the is the word wicked, right? Uh, these are uh, incredibly difficult challenges to solve because they're so political and contested. Um, because uh, it's hard to get the collaboration necessary, and the leadership is is faulty, it's it's or failing, or it's 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 misguided. 
Um, I don't mean the people, I mean the way we're trying to solve the problems. And, you know, and again, COVID serves as an example there. It's, it's, you know, we, it's hard to imagine a more immediate and tangible and global life-threatening challenge. Um, but even it became political, masks and now, unfortunately, probably vaccines. So uh, it's, 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 about, it's about leadership. Um, and, and so 15 years ago, a couple of us started spinning up a new grad program, the one we've been talking about, uh, to focus on, on professionals and, and helping them build those capacities, the skills, the tools, the strategies that we call leadership, for lack of an, another word. And because we're based near Washington, D.C., the program's actually inside the Beltway there. Um, there's a lot of talent, a lot of practitioners, a lot of folks from businesses and, and uh, government and civil society organizations that are, are doing amazing things. And uh, way, of, way ahead of the academy, way ahead of university, way ahead of the, the researchers. And so we started bringing those people into the classroom uh, and I started interviewing them and, and writing about them. And it's like, wow, you know, you're you're doing that. That's so cool. Uh, and and um, so we, we kind of turned the program on its head rather than, you know, given facts and stuff that you can get on Google where focused on building capacity and, and, and learning how these people are solving problems. And I've been collecting those uh, over the years. And the book is the sort of the result of, of, of many of those lessons. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked, we touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation and in that something that I love both about this book and the executive master natural resources program is the emphasis on people using their unique skill sets and experiences and knowledge to address sustainability challenges from their position in the world. Will you elaborate a little bit more on the significance of people leading from where they are and the impacts that that can have on sustainability? Yeah. So leadership, um, that's a, that's a, it's a one of those loaded words, just like sustainability is a loaded word. Um, uh, and the, the, because the wicked problems uh, require coordinating the activities of people uh, that may not ever meet, and there's certainly no one that has authority over, over everybody. Uh, and because the issues are so contested that, the, that the, the people involved in figuring out what the problem is and what the solution are, are the ones that actually have to decide what that problem is and what the solution is. It can't be told from above. Uh, and because things have to are changing so quickly that the tools and strategies we've used in the past are might not work in the in the future. Um, it requires it makes the problem these situations so wicked that it requires everybody to accept responsibility and engage in the task of getting what we say directional alignment commitment. But basically, the 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 key attributes of uh, whenever a group or an organization or a nation or a university whatever gets gets things done, they've they've achieved directional alignment commitment. And they figure out where they want to go. They're, they figure out what needs to be done and who's going to do it. And they're committed to getting it done. And how do you make that happen? And that requires people leading from where they are. Uh, everybody in the, in the system, er, no matter where you are in the hierarchy, you don't have to have the corner office yeah, or the position of power. Everybody has a role to play in getting directional alignment commitment in these big, wicked systems changes. And the, the extent that we can help make that happen, each of us, it increases our influence and impact and, and our career advancement. So we uh, are working hard to help people see how they can contribute to, to systems change, to uh, influence, to, to having impact. Um, and, and we call that leadership, uh, but we're leading, leading from where you are. Yeah. And I think that that's incredibly important right now from where we sit, all of us living together in the Anthropocene, where we as humans and our actions have become this major force of nature. Um, and, you know, I, I know that you and I are familiar with that term and probably a lot of other sustainability professionals, but for some le listeners out there that may not be familiar with the Anthropocene, will you share what are some of the things that make this age unique? Well, Anthropocene, another one of these great contested words, but I, I think it's a, it really helps us think about uh, our place in history 
and in evolution. Um, the, the geologists you know, have all kinds of uh, have broken up the historic time, and the most uh, recent uh, epoch is uh, the Holocene, and that's the one where humanity kind of got traction. It's the it was around about fifteen thousand years ago. It started twelve fifteen thousand years ago, and that's when we figured out agriculture because the seasons were uh, stable. We figured out how to make markets and and build civilization and urbanize. And uh, it, it basically, it's where we, we, we've been around for a long time, but that's when we, we, uh, we grew tremendously uh, and were successful. And it was a very stable time. And now in the Anthropocene, uh, it's an anthro being human and seeing time. It's, it's, a, it's human's time. We, we're basically changing geology, climate, the world, right, because of our actions, and so uh, it's our responsibility to to fix it. But with the main main lesson from a sustainability perspective is that because things are are changing so much that we don't know if the the tools and strategies we've used in the past, the infrastructure, the urbanization, the agriculture, uh, is going to going to work in the future in this new environment. I mean, if you look back at the trends, just about every biological environmental social trend really starts to arc upward. There's an inflection point after World War II, certainly in the 20th century. And they're, you know, they're going exponentially into a different place. We are transforming our nest, our earth. Um, and it goes by different names like the Great Acceleration and, and other, other sorts of terms. But the Anthropocene is a, is a way of thinking about how much we've transformed our our world, and and then that means we have to transform the the technology and tools and strategies we use to promote civilization. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So in the book, you or one of, I want to pause because maybe maybe it's one of your co-authors, David Robertson or Michael Mortimer. I don't know who actually said this, so I don't want to attribute credit to the wrong person. Maybe it's a combination. Uh, one of you say, prosperity, not population, is the key driver of the challenges we face in the coming decades and century. This is a good problem to have because we want more people to be more empowered, healthy, educated, and secure. And then you continue on to describe the impacts that this is having on urban migration and infrastructure. And that whole part of the book really resonated with me and I found it fascinating. Um, will you share your thoughts on the role cities play in global sustainability? Yeah. And let me just give a nod to uh, David and Michael. Uh, it, it was very much a collaborative effort in putting this together. Um, uh, so it's hard to know where one's one point person's point ends and the other begins. But this is uh, yeah, an argument that I frequently make um, in part to, uh, to to make the point that th this is 
sustainable development really is about people, right? It's, 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 it's about how we develop as much, or I think more than what we do about the environment. And, um, so, uh, let me take the, the first part of the question before I get to urbanization, if that's all right, and we can come back to urbanization, but the idea that it's prosperity is the issue, not, not people. Uh, the, yeah, I think environmentalists, conservationists sometimes really get hung up on the, the people problem, the population bomb sort of rhetoric. And it, it sometimes makes us seem anthropo, um, uh, misanthropic, right? That's the word I was looking for, like against humanity. Um, and, and it, it's, it's a really hard position to defend politically and, uh, cause it makes babies a problem. And it's also, um, I think it's wrong. If you look at the demographic transition, the literature is coming out now suggesting that we, we're basically at peak child at peak baby. There'll never be more children alive today or maybe in the next decade or so than, than any, than, than any other time mm-hmm. and which means it's going to decline. And so we're, we're, uh, we're potentially, you know, at the, at the peak, we're still going to add some, some more people, but, but pop the pop, basically we've, we've solved the population problem. Uh, there's still important work to do in family planning and the, and the people that are working on that task are, are doing critical and important work, but, but it's succeeding. And so because of all the demographic transitions issues, the, the population problem is, is I think, uh, solved the, the, the bigger challenge is that we're we're getting wealthier and healthier, and we're well, going to welcome in billions of people to the global middle class and and out of poverty, and and that means you know flush toilets and light bulbs and 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 iPads and 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 phones and 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 plus all their creativity and activity and and so you know, that we we really are at a time where things are getting better. Feel sometimes that things are really getting bad, uh, and it never been worse. But the, statistically, and you look at the trends, and you you know you read Pinker or Rosling or Deaton or others, the trends suggest that this is, is things have never really been better. So so it's it's how we handle that prosperity uh, is is the challenge, uh, and that's a good problem to have. And and as I said earlier, I think we can solve all these problems. Uh, we've got the technology now to solve things like climate change and overfishing and, and what have you. It's just a question of, of leadership. So that's the, the first part. That is that, you know, that, that, uh, it, that, that prosperity is a challenge, not, not, not population. But uh, you want to dig into any of the, or either of those? No, I think that is, is well put, well said. Um, and I thank you for sharing that. And I, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on um, cities and how they tie into global sustainability, but in a way, so the reason I'm asking you about the city portion of this is uh, one, I think that you have a lot of valuable insight to share. And then the second part of that is something that I've been discussing with my family and friends lately is what the impacts of the COVID-19 outbreak will be on cities. And this is probably something that we don't have the answers to, but it's worth uh, exploring and pondering in my opinion. And I've been thinking about it because I live in the greater Boston area and at least here we're seeing people moving away and landlords are having trouble finding tenants and local businesses are closing down. But then places like Maine where I grew up are seeing an influx of people moving there and buying property because there's more space. And I know that I'm really addressing this from a a certain perspective um, and addressing a certain population of people with the privilege and means to pick up and move during times like these. But do you think that the the outbreak of COVID-19 and possible future pandemics and what we're seeing right now might have long-term effects on this urban migration trend? Uh, well, uh, yes and no. Uh, how about that for being wishy-washy? <laughs> um, for, first, uh, let me let me hit on, on urbanization. You know, as a as a phenomenon, right? We're uh, and then and then how COVID is is impacting it because mm-hmm. urbanization, I think, is one of the biggest levers, one of the biggest tools we have, strategies we have to to, to, to sustain development, to promote sustainable development. It's it, and it's it like population. Sometimes uh, some of the conservationists, environmentalists are, um, uh, 
uh, not too keen on urbanization, but it, it, when done well, it's like one of the most powerful things we can do in terms of pulling people out of poverty, in terms of reducing environmental impact per person, less land, less water, less energy, more commuting, all that other kind of stuff. Urbanization is good all around if it's done well. It's a done well. And people have been moving into cities or urbanization since the really the beginning of agriculture and sedentary life. It, and, and, and it's it's uh, it's where the jobs are and it's where the it's, it's the lowest poverty. It's where the uh, best health care is, best education. It's where people find mates. It's where equity and opportunity uh, and rights are, are highest. Um, and so last decade or so, we passed uh, the we became urban as a species, 50 percent urban. And arguably, by the by, the middle of this century, will be seventy five percent urban, uh, because people are are moving for the benefits of urbanization, and that's an extraordinary amount of of urbanization. That is, we may double everything built between the beginning of time and two thousand. We may double everything, but uh, sort of between now and 2060, 2070. That's a lot of infrastructure that we have to build. A lot of, and we can do it well. We know how to do it well with smart growth and other things. And it it will save biodiversity. It will save energy. It will save water. Uh, and there's some good good work on that by by Glasser and others that, that people can dig into. So urbanization is is critically important for human rights and poverty and and saving the environment as well. So what does COVID do to this? That's yeah. That I mean that's actually one of the questions that keeps me up at night because mm-hmm. um, I think it will be transformative in in many ways. Um, and, and on the positive side, uh, there's a lot of potential infrastructure development that will happen with. COVID um, stimulus efforts, right? To uh, stimulus money to to invest in infrastructure that will uh, be green and 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 promote sustainable development. And the Breakthrough Institute has some great suggestions for that. Uh, so that's that's a positive. Um, but yeah, people are moving out of the first tier cities. I agree. Um, that's there's a pretty well established data on that. Uh, and where they're going, um, a lot of them are going to sort of second and third tier cities. They're still urban, but smaller. Uh, and you know, they're finding that um, Amazon still delivers packages there, that uh, there's an airport nearby, you know, that uh, they, um, uh, they, can, they can work remotely and still be creative. Um, and we, we still, so they can, they can do well there. So there, I think there will be a shift maybe from some of the first tier cities that have experienced so much growth to second tier cities for those people that can afford to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big challenge, um, is, is, is mass transit and green transport. The, and people, I think will have a long time, uh, concern about contagion, um, even after herd humi- uh, immunity is struck, um, or been achieved, uh, get on a, a, a bus or a train um, or in a shared vehicle, right? The big hope of uh, shared uh, autonomous electric vehicles uh, that we won't need as many vehicles because they can be shared. They'll be electric. Um, uh, that has potentially transformative impacts in, in, for climate and other kinds of urbanization because uh, it really reduces the number of vehicles we would need. But will we want to share vehicles now? So I, I think COVID uh, has some pluses uh, and some minuses, but I do not think it's going to derail urbanization. It's just so much momentum, so much opportunity uh, in urbanization. It's just maybe where the urbanization is occurring. I think may, may be different. Does that does that resonate at all with you? Yeah, definitely. And you know, something that I really appreciate about this conversation and the book is looking at these uh, really complex, wicked problems, and through a lens of innovation, leadership, and optimism, um, because some of this work can feel really heavy um, if your frame, the framework you're approaching it in. Um, isn't, I guess, approached from from that way and with those mindsets. And especially right now, I, I feel like these are particularly divisive times, or at least they feel that way. And, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying something as complex as what we're seeing unfold with the leadership of this country, um, you know, I, I feel like what we're seeing right now is 
is upsetting yet a perfect example of what happens when we refuse to work together. Um, So what do we as leaders need to be mindful of when attempting to collaborate across differences? Yeah, I I would love to have the soundbite for that. Um, Basically, read the book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But uh, I mean, there are, you know, there's the obvious things um, you even mentioned uh, uh, that we focus on in the program. And certainly we talk about in the book is, is we have to, um, we have to know ourselves uh, and our audience, right? Um, We all have lots of biases and assumptions and framings. And so we spent a little bit of time in the book on that, um, and, and, and how to, um, how to work across some of the divides. Um, but the bigger challenges now are, are things that like the facts, uh, don't matter or they matter less. Um, and so how do you, how do you deal with a, with a, with a challenge, uh, when you're not going to convince somebody with facts? Um, and, and instead we have to, fight filter bubbles and echo chambers and those kinds of things. So the book is full of tools for doing that. And, and one of them is sort of focusing on identity, um, identity management, um, uh, belonging to a group and, and promoting, promoting group identity and stuff. And so there are a variety of tools that, that help us work across some of these, these are hugely difficult challenges. Some of them, uh, I don't think we can, we, we can't crack, some nuts. Um, I don't think we'll be able to bridge all divides uh, and bring all people along. Uh, but we can, uh, I'm convinced, we can form enough of a coalition uh, to, uh, to, to, to solve these, these big challenges with just, you know, simple things like, well, I guess boundary spanning leadership is not really simple. And it's a pretty sophisticated five-step process of you know, recognizing your differences and buffering and synergizing those differences. But we can, we can do that. Uh, we can also just practice active listening. I mean, um, that's that's the hardest thing for me. I, I've got relatives that are on the other side of the divide, and uh, we all do, and and, and colleagues and whatnot. Um, and just uh, to listen uh, and understand, and make them know that you understand them. That's so hard. Um, and if you listen long enough and well enough and you're lucky enough, they may actually ask you what you think and be ready to listen to you. Um, and then then you can share what you think. It's so hard to get to that point to have the patience to do it. But that, that you know, just listening is, is key. Um, we don't spend a lot of time with those simple things on the book, but we, you know, we mentioned it and also um, uh, being like, like you as a great interviewer, you, you, you say yes. And you, you invite the conversation to continue rather than use the word, but <laughs> yes, but which is a <laughs> reputation and, 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 you know, puts me on the defensive. You say yes. And, and you keep the conversation going and you're nice. I mean, you make me feel good. You, you, we, we can, we can, we, by making people feel good about themselves, they're much more likely to to work with you on the, on issues. So there, you know, there's some simple things and some difficult things we can do, um, and and some of the strategies are quite technical that we talk about in the book, but some of them are really simple. That doesn't make them easy. Active listening, being nice, being a good questioner, those are not easy things. They're, they're talents that take a lot of practice. Oh, they definitely take a lot of practice, and you know, something that we've considered with the show is, is having, you know, like what if I record a conversation with some of my family members that don't necessarily align with my worldview? Um, I think that would make for an incredibly interesting episode and, um, challenge my, uh, my practice of a lot of the things that I talk about on the show. Mm. Um, so, you know, having you on, I, I think is, I think it's just a case by case thing where Um, You know, I try my hardest to be respectful and mindful in all of my interactions, but I certainly have a lot of work to do uh, with, with, you know, just I'm I'm human too. We all are. And I think it's all about uh, just making a commitment to the work and, and, and the growth. But um, before I get off too sidetracked, now that I'm thinking about families <laughs> and the difficult discussions that we all have in life, um, I want to make sure that we provide listeners an, an outlet and an opportunity to know where they can find the book. 
and how they can follow along with your work and get involved with your work um, should they hear this conversation and be interested in learning more. Because I know that I certainly uh, really enjoyed reading this book. I feel that it gave me a renewed sense of my place and purpose in the world, along with some tools that I can work on and integrate into my daily life and the work that I do um, and my my sphere of influence. Um, and I think it's, I truly feel like it's something that, that a lot of people can learn from um, and would enjoy reading. So where can people find the book and how can they follow along with you and your work? Yeah. Well, again, thanks for that, that great summary uh, and pitch. Um, so the book is published by Island Press, uh, which is a nonprofit and a, a mission-oriented group to, to deal with the same sort of issues that, that your listeners are going to be concerned with. Um, and uh, they have lots of other good, 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 good readings as well. Uh, it's, and the book's available you know, at any, any ebook or large distrib- distributor uh, or even local bookstores. Um, so uh, Leadership for Sustainability and, and Hull will get you there on Google. Um, how to follow along. Um, I mean, I, I like to write. It's the hardest thing I do, uh, but I love doing it. Um, I, I love to write about people who are uh, solving problems or in the middle of things. So, uh, you know, if you've got a, a cool story to tell, reach out to me. Um, I blog about them before they turn into things like books or, or student assignments uh, or talk about them on podcasts. And they certainly come into my classrooms. Um, so I, I would love to, uh, to work with folks that have these stories to tell because I think there are so many, so many lessons. I and mean, the book itself is sort of three parts. There's, the, there's a bit of a roadmap that helps people uh, sort of see themselves and their, their careers and, and, and map them in their careers. And then there's this big toolbox that we've been talking about, um, strategies, some technical, some, some pretty straightforward for solving the wicked problems. And then the, the third part is, uh, is the storybook. Like you were saying, it's the inspiration. It's, hey, this person solved that problem this way. That's so cool. I wouldn't do it quite like that, but I, you know, I might do it differently. And and and, uh, and but I'm inspired to try now. And that's what the storybook part is. And I, I'm working now on um, trying to uh, have a have just a storybook, you know, just a compilation of success stories or failures, where uh, uh, people can learn from from one another and uh, and and be inspired to. Uh, uh, be impactful in their in their career because I you know again I believe in the creativity and the inspiration and insight of of practitioners and and try to capture some of that wisdom that's that's my goal with uh, ongoing projects. Yeah, absolutely, and you know we can all learn so much from each other and our own lived experiences and lessons learned, and I I think you know, large in part, that's, that's what this show exists to do as well is, is hear from interesting people. And we get to take an hour or so to hear about our work, share our work, learn from our, our challenges and successes, and hopefully inspire each other to keep going and um, maybe borrow bits and pieces from what, what works for other people and integrate that into our larger, our larger work to help Uh, push forward toward a more sustainable planet. Um, But as we wrap up, I I have a series of broader questions for you to round out the show that I I ask these to all of my guests um, to sort of pull at some of the main points of our conversation and then glean any last insight um, from you because I feel very fortunate to sit in this, this role, in this position that I'm in today where I get to talk to some pretty incredible uh, people on this show. So I would like to start with what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we are faced with? Ooh, well, the easy answers are climate change and water security and, of course, o- ocean fisheries and biodiversity and those kinds of things. But I would say to me, the biggest challenge is the circular economy. We're, we have to transition from a linear economy, a take weight waste, a take, make waste economy to a, a circular economy where the, the, uh, the things we discard are put back into the economy. And there's a lot of fat, good work on that, but it's, 
I think it's the it's the challenge we face and that we talk about in the book that has the least number of solutions. We've got the most work to do on on creating that circular economy because it's going to change consumer demand. It's going to change markets. It's it's going to change governance. It's it's a really heavy lift, but it's it's critical if we're going to live on a finite world and continue to develop. That continue to be wealthy. Continue uh, to have opportunity. And what are you hopeful for moving forward? Uh, people like you um, and your <laughs> listeners, you know, um, innovation that comes from that, from uh, the partnerships uh, the, and the collaboration. Um, but um, mostly it's just uh, people are willing to try. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 that's what makes me hopeful about, about the future is people are willing to try. And this last one is sort of a, a two-part question um, in first part being, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? And then we flip that and ask, what advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, given advice, um, professor, so watch out. Um, <laughs> the, the best advice I've ever been given, though, is really um, uh, appreciate uh, what I have, uh, appreciate what I've been given. Um, I, I'm not a, a particularly religious person, but I love the saying that uh, there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? Um, I got, you know, realize that almost all the opportunities, the wealth, the health, the travel I've had are, are due uh, in large measure because I was born into a particular family in a particular country at a particular time. Um, and I travel the world, particularly I work a lot in India, uh, in the developing world. And, you know, I, I just meet so many people who are so much brighter than I am and more caring. They tell better jokes. They're much more innovative and hardworking, but they just don't have the opportunities I have. And so I, I really am inspired by the capacity of others. And that's, that's because of this advice is, is sort of appreciate what I have and, and, and how it's attributable to the sort of the systemic uh, things that we're tr you know, trying to change now, I think, with racial reckoning and other, other sorts of things. We've been trying to change them, but they're, we're particularly aware of that now. I think I owe that to my mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's fantastic advice. And it's, it's a nice thing to remind ourselves of if we're ever, um, you know, I try to do that if I'm feeling feeling down or frustrated with my place in the world is uh, realizing that I, I feel like many of us have in this country, um, people in my own circles have won the, the universal lottery with the place in the world that we were born and the families that we were born into. Um, so Bruce, it has been a pleasure catching up with you today. I really enjoyed this conversation and look forward to sharing it with our listeners and I just thank you for this discussion and um, I'm really excited to stay in touch and follow along with all the impactful work that you and the folks at the Center for Leadership and Global Sustainability are doing. Well, thank you for your leadership uh, and thank you to your readers, uh, no, your readers, to the listeners. I hope they'll become readers uh, for, <laughs> for what they're doing. I mean, you know, if they've hung in this long, they're motivated, they're making a difference in the world and uh, thank you. I'd also like to thank the listeners. If you like what you heard and want to explore more of the show and others like it, you can find the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribes, rates, and reviews are always welcome. And you can connect with us on Facebook at Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network, as well as on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Coastal News 365. And should you want to connect with me personally, I am at Jenna Valente on Instagram and at Yenna Benna on Twitter. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines. <laughs>